0: That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Senior Scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Nuzzo has agreed to answer questions that have been coming in all week about the novel coronavirus. Let's listen. Dr. Nuzzo, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks. So we've been getting a lot of questions um, through our uh, email address, publichealthquestion at jhu.edu, and through the webcast that we did earlier in the week. And I'd just like to ask you a few of them. Sure. So um, the first one is, is hand sanitizer effective to protect against coronavirus?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, We've been stressing the importance of hand hygiene as a way to reduce the possibility of getting infected. Um, First of all, plain soap and water is great, um, and uh, quite effective to use. Um, that said, if you, uh, there are times when you may find yourself not near a bathroom and can't get to soap and water. And so hand sanitizer is a good alternative, particularly when you're on the go. Um, there's no reason to think the hand sanitizer is better than soap and water, but it's, uh, certainly, um, uh, you know, a convenient, uh, tool to use.
0: Great. Um, here's another question. What are the chances that this virus, COVID-19, will turn into a full-scale epidemic in the United States as we see now in some countries like South Korea?
1: Uh, So first of all, um, right now the United States is uh, greatly expanding the numbers and types of people who can be tested for this virus. So as a result, um, we should expect to see uh, over the coming weeks um, an expansion in the number of cases being reported. This is possibly due to the fact that we are testing more, but also additional cases will occur. Um, I think it is safe to assume that we should expect to see most communities affected by this virus. Um, respiratory viruses like this one spread really quickly, um, quite silently, so it's hard to sort of anticipate where they're going to go next. And um, uh, it's it's um, there's no reason to think that any particular place would be protected from seeing cases.
0: So, very common question that we've gotten is in the should I travel category? Should I go to Colombia? Should I go across the country? Should I go to London? Um, How do you advise people to think about this question, given how many unknowns there are?
1: So this is a hard question to fully answer with science. One, because it's hard to know at any one point where cases are and where cases aren't. Um, When we find cases, it's likely representing a bit of a delay in terms of when an infection occurred. So it's hard for you to say just because, you know, this part of the country or this other country doesn't have cases, they're not going to have it next week when I travel. Um, The other reason why it's hard to say is because, um, in part, decisions about these things um, involve how much risk tolerance you have and what your personal circumstances are. So if you're somebody who's medically compromised or fall into some high-risk groups, you don't need to travel, you might decide it's probably not worth it to you to go. Whereas um, if you're somebody who does not fall into those risk groups and um, are questioning whether to go to your family member's wedding, you might think that that's a risk worth taking.
0: Um, Great. Um, What about evidence of the risk to pregnant women?
1: So far, there isn't a lot of evidence. And it doesn't mean that there aren't risks. But um, so far, we haven't seen any particular data indicating that pregnant women are at risk. I don't want to say that they wouldn't be. But we just don't know for certain.
0: It's so new, people who are... Just getting pregnant, we probably haven't had the exactly. full pregnancy even exactly. happen yet. So it's a big unknown. Right. Um, here are some questions about the testing. One question is whether the tests can tell the difference between active infection or just having been infected in the past.
1: Right. So the tests that we're talking about now are tests that are looking for the presence of the virus in your body, and that means active infection. Um, There's another type of testing one could do if one had developed this called a serologic testing, which looks for evidence that you may have been infected in the past. We're not yet doing um, serology tests. I think they're important for us to do at some point, but that's going to require scientific development, and that'll be more like a research study.
0: So, at some point, we'll have that serologic antibody test, and then Hopefully. we'll we'll get to know how many people have been infected and maybe didn't even get that Sick and maybe didn't even know about it.
1: That's my hope. I think that's an important reason to do serologic testing. Um, We didn't really uh, do this well during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, and so I um, stress it because I'm hoping that scientists and health authorities are thinking about this and planning ahead for doing these tests.
0: Great. But the testing we're talking about now is for active infection.
1: Active infection, looking for evidence that there's virus in your body.
0: Why are face masks not recommended for purchase right now for healthy individuals?
1: Right. So first of all, um, face masks aren't for use in healthy individuals. Um, they're best used uh, by uh, sick people to prevent them from expelling droplets that contain the virus when they cough and when they sneeze. Um, face masks are used for healthcare workers. And the reason why those healthy individuals do use masks is because the um, amount of exposure they have to virus to a virus is much different than the average person. Um, there have been studies that have looked at um, mask use in um, healthy individuals who are not healthcare workers, and they find a number of um, opportunities for increased risk. Namely, if you're not wearing the masks properly, and it's, um, uh, first of all, if you're not wearing the right kind of mask, it may not... Um, Protect you fully, and um, the, the masks that are thought to be more protective need to be um, fit tested. They need to be the right size for your face. It's really hard for uh, an average person to evaluate. Secondly, there have been studies that have looked at when people wear masks, they tend to touch their face more frequently, possibly because they're adjusting their mask. And if you touch a contaminated surface and then you touch your eyes, you can still infect yourself. So you may be winding up putting yourself at increased risk by wearing a mask because of this false sense of security that they may provide.
0: Great. Um, we got a, a bunch of questions where people were worried about themselves and their particular medical conditions. You know, They, they said you know, maybe they have asthma or rheumatoid arthritis, or you know, they're in the middle of cancer treatment. People are obviously pretty scared. Um, and uh, sort of another dimension to the um, anxiety that mm-hmm. people generally feel about the situation. Um, what, what, what do you advise people who are wondering how these general recommendations translate specifically for them?
1: Yeah. It's a difficult thing. I mean, I think if you fall into these categories and when you're evaluating things like going in, you know, traveling or going into large public venues where you're likely to be exposed to a lot of different people, you may be less inclined to do that based on your personal risk. Again, the, the challenge here is that we don't really know and probably won't know in real time enough to make these kind of decisions where the virus is and where it isn't. And what we're looking at here with the situation is likely something that could last for months. So it's going to be very hard for even if you fall in this category to think about staying home that entire time. And so that's why... Or
0: foregoing medical treatment that you actually need.
1: Absolutely. And so that's why I think you really have to... Um, balance the risks and benefits with each of these things and not just focus on the virus itself.
0: And definitely talk it over with your doctor. Absolutely. So um we've heard some uh hopeful thinking that when the weather warms up there won't be quite the um transmissibility of this virus. Um maybe it'll die down for a while and then perhaps come back in the fall when we're a little bit maybe more prepared for it. Um what do you think about that thinking?
1: Well, the hopeful thinking stems from two things. One is that um, regular coronaviruses, the ones that are known to cause the common cold, do have a seasonality to them. So they tend to be highest in the colder months and um, lower in the warmer months. Um, The other uh, thought is um, that the SARS epidemic, which was caused by a new coronavirus in 2003, really sort of ended um, with the beginning of summer. It's not clear whether the weather was really what ended it. I think in all likelihood, um, infection control improvements in health facilities, which were largely what drove the SARS epidemic, um, played a much more important role. Nonetheless, um, the bottom line is that we don't have any strong evidence to say this virus will uh, disappear with the warmer months. Um, It's likely even if uh, the infections decrease, we could still see infections through the summer. This happened in 2009 for the H1N1 influenza pandemic. Although um, the number of cases decreased in the summer, we still saw cases throughout the summer. And then in the fall, uh, the number of cases increased yet again. So the point is you can't plan for there to be a decrease in transmission. And I think we have to go ahead, assuming it won't happen, and then hope that it does.
0: Great. A couple questions related to flu. One, does Tamiflu, which is the treatment for flu, work for coronavirus?
1: No. Okay,
0: that's a pretty good answer. Now, what about the question of whether it's a good idea to get a flu shot if you haven't gotten one so far this season?
1: It's a great idea to get a flu shot if you haven't gotten one this season, and certainly next season, please absolutely get a flu shot. The reason is, first of all, flu is an important public health problem. In Maryland here, so far, five children have died from flu, which is just a tragedy. Um, It's important to be protected against flu. The vaccine may not um, keep you from getting sick, but it certainly reduces serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. And in this situation where we are potentially looking at many people becoming severely ill and requiring hospitalization from COVID-19, it would be very helpful if we could reduce the amount of flu cases in our health systems.
0: Um, that would give a little bit more space.
1: Absolutely. Give some more more beds, more medical resources, so that we could be focused on treating the COVID-19 patients for whom we don't yet have specific treatments or vaccines. Um, how
0: likely is it that most of the cases will stay on the east and west coast of the country—that's a question that we got.
1: Highly unlikely. Um, I think in the next uh, weeks we will start seeing cases pop up throughout the country. I think the ones that we, the places where we are already seeing cases, are likely those places that um, have been testing earlier than others. Um, and uh, in past respiratory virus epidemics, um, these things spread fairly quickly. Uh, so I would expect to see a lot of the country affected fairly soon.
0: Great. Um, how? effective are quarantines, and when are they best used?
1: Well, we don't have a lot of great evidence for using quarantine. Um, it's often talked about as a tried-and-true public health tool, but it's not something we largely do in the modern context. There are only certain circumstances in which we do. And I just want to clarify, when I say quarantine, I mean preventing people who are not yet sick from moving around, you know, um, freely circulating in the population, the idea being that they might become sick throughout an incubation period, um, and then in hopes that you could kind of prevent them from transmitting to others. Um, I don't think we have seen a lot of great evidence. Um, we've seen some instances in which quarantines have actually um, resulted in increase of cases, and that's certainly been true with the cruise ships. In fact, um, some of the largest clusters of cases reported outside of China have been on um, a single cruise ship. So um, even if they are theoretically effective in the sense that if you prevent someone who's about to develop the virus from uh, coming in contact with others, they're extraordinarily burdensome to pull off. You have to think about caring and monitoring for somebody for essentially potentially 14 days, um, which takes a tremendous amount of public right. health resources that likely could be better applied elsewhere.
0: Great. Um. couple quick ones, I think. Um, Can this virus be transmitted by mosquito?
1: Uh, No.
0: Okay. Um, And the next one is, if someone goes for a jog through a neighborhood where there might be a patient with coronavirus, are they at risk for um, getting infected?
1: No. The majority of the transmissions of this virus occur through droplet transmission, meaning a sick patient Uh, coughs or sneezes, um, expelling virus out in droplets that don't travel that far. They tend to fall to surfaces about a six foot distance. Um, if you touch a surface that is contaminated with droplets from someone who's coughed or sneezed on it, then, and you touch those droplets and you touch your, um, eyes or nose or mouth, then you could potentially, um, become infected that way. But, um, we do not believe in normal circumstances that the virus, uh, the individual viral particles hang in the air and are spread via the air, like the question would suggest. Just running through an area would require that the, the individual viral particles be floating in the air to inhale. And um, there are certain instances in which you could generate an aerosol of virus, but that's um, usually confined to certain medical um, procedures or um, in a
0: closed room, not running correct. down the street,
1: right? Um, or in um, there have there was one um, study that suggested that um, two people in an apartment building may have become infected, or one person may have become infected from somebody else because of um, faulty pipes that created an aerosol virus.
0: Got it. Um, my last question is how to think about the shift that may have to happen from containment of the virus to mitigation of the virus's effects. Right now, public health departments are trying to track every contact and um, isolate people who are sick, Mm -hmm. try to cut down on the spread of the disease, with the idea of getting it to go away altogether. Um, At some point, if there are so many people, there just aren't the resources to do that, and you have to switch to mitigating the impact. How um, should we all be thinking about that shift? Is it going to be like the switch flips for the United States? Or is it going to be community by community? And how is that decision get made?
1: So I think we are already past the point of containment in the sense that I don't think there's any evidence that we are going to be able to stop the spread of this virus. In fact, I think we have to plan that it will be with us for some time. That said, I think it's important, at least while the case numbers are low for public health First of all, it's always important for um, uh, sick people to isolate, be isolated, so that they don't spread the virus to others. That's the single most important public health measure that we could take. I think while case numbers are low, it's helpful for public health to do contact investigations, find out who sick people may have come in contact with, and to monitor them because there's still many questions we don't, to which we don't know the, for which we don't know the answers for this virus, and those contact investigations can be. Uh, quite helpful and um, further our our understanding of of not only the virus, but how best to respond. At some point, it will become untenable that there will just simply be too many cases for public health officials to um, continue doing contact investigations. And um, isolation will probably happen voluntarily because people who are sick decide to stay home and or they're sick enough to go to a hospital and they'll be isolated in a hospital. Um, but uh, it will probably at that point not be possible for public health officials to do contact investigations. There still may be some communities for which they have small case numbers and they will continue to do it. But um, I think resources will ultimately determine it.
0: And so it could be kind of variable across the country. Absolutely. So a uh, couple last quick questions. Where can people go for really good truthful information um, about this situation.
1: Um, well, certainly um, the CDC has put out information. Um, the World Health Organization uh, tries to summarize information it has received and uh, I think our frankly our school's resources have been um, filling in some of the gaps between those two sources.
0: Great. They can uh, go to the school's website, get information. Um, in addition, I would add state and local health departments are putting out very important recommendations for individual communities.
1: Yeah, I think you'll see those start to come online um, as states are still kind of gearing up. Um, but uh, certainly as they're finding more cases, they'll start putting re- uh, resources out there.
0: People want to learn a lot more about response to these situations. Are there any books that you recommend?
1: Um, Well, there's a great book called The Public Health Crisis Survival Guide, which I think for anyone who is involved in a um, public health uh, operational role who may have to think about how to manage this, um, particularly to do so to maintain credibility um, in the face of um, uncertainty, uh, that's really helpful. Um, I always like D.A. Henderson's um, Smallpox, The Death of a Disease, because it really gives you a perspective on the operational challenges to confronting Um, the the spread of disease and the goal of um, trying to reduce its impacts on society.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nozzo. Really appreciate your uh, answering all these questions for us. quite welcome. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.